Well, I was reading this story this week about a man that decided that his wife was getting hard of hearing. And so he called their doctor to make an appointment. But he said that he could see them only in two weeks. But he said in the meantime, there was actually some simple informal tests the husband could do to give the doctor an idea of the dimensions of the problem his wife was having. And so he said, here's what you got to do. Stand about 40 feet away from her and speak in a normal conversational tone and see if she hears you. And if not, go to 30 feet, then 20 feet, and so on until you get a response. That evening, his wife was in the kitchen cooking dinner, and he's in the living room, and he says to himself, I think I'm about 40 feet away, so let's see what happens. Honey, what's for supper? He got no response, so he moves to the end of the room, which is about 30 feet away, and he says, honey, what's for supper? Still got no response. Onto the kitchen door, only about 10 feet away, he says, honey, what's for supper? Still no response. So he walks up right behind her and says, honey, what's for supper? She turns around and says, for the fifth time, chicken. This humorous story reveals a shrouded problem in our society today. I think we're in a drought. No, not a scarcity of moisture, rather a famine of listening. It is honestly kind of paradoxical that active listening is lacking in our modern age of mass communication. In our world of technological advancements for communicating, whether instantaneously via email or text or tweet, verbally across probably hundreds if not thousands of miles, through our phones that are in our pockets or in platforms like Zoom, or by paper through the postal service, or even, even across our own solar system with scientists being able to communicate with drones and things even on the planet Mars. We do not lack the capability to communicate. I think we lack the ability to listen and listen well. We can communicate six ways to Sunday, yet the aptitude and skill of listening seems to have gone out the door. Historically, this Sunday has been set aside as Transfiguration Sunday, a Sunday dedicated to the reading and studying of the story in the Synoptic Gospels of Jesus' divinity being briefly unveiled for three of his disciples atop a mountain. This is a climactic revelation of his identity before the resurrection on Easter morning, and it's the ultimate act of Epiphany, hence its placement in the culminating Sunday for the traditional season of Epiphany right before we enter Lent next week. We are examining Mark's rendering of this familiar story. And this week, upon reading this story, I picked up on something that I've been fascinated with all week. And I want to share it with you. This entire scene is filled with incredible and even mystical splendor and glory. And there's really no other story like it in the Gospels, except maybe Jesus' baptism or even walking on water. But notice that the priority of the heavenly voice at the conclusion of this episode is this. It's he says, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. The takeaway for the disciples is not necessarily only the spectacle that they saw. Rather, they're instructed to listen to the one who was transfigured before them, Jesus. The lesson here is one of listening, not necessarily only seeing 
And so my first point this morning is that we are to listen to one who is greater. Picking right uh, right off where we were last week, Jesus sets out with Peter, James, and John for an away mission. These three are are previously privy to Jesus' healing and resurrection of Jairus' daughter back in chapter 5. And they eventually will be the ones who witnesses Jesus' agony at Gethsemane in chapter 14. One would assume that these three disciples somehow exhibit superior spirituality or faith than the other disciples. However, that's not necessarily the case. If you remember, in the previous chapter, Peter was the one that was reprimanded with, Get behind me, Satan. And he will later publicly deny Jesus three times. James and John don't fare much better with being preoccupied a few chapters later with who is the greatest between the two of them rather than who is the most the servant. But in the end, all three will be guilty of failing to remain awake with Jesus during his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane on Good Friday. But nevertheless, these three imperfect disciples are the ones that are allowed this private, special little hike with Jesus atop a mountain by themselves. And incredibly, these are the candidates for Jesus' ultimate act of self-revealing. A careful reading of the Old Testament discovers the importance of mountains being the meeting place between God and a human agent. In other words, God would speak to messengers and prophets of the people of Israel in elevated places or places that were near the heavens, so to speak. Yet the elements of this story, like the cloud that overshadowed them and the divine voice, they all call back to Israel's history in the Exodus. Exodus chapter 24, verses 15 through 18 reads, And the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. So Peter, James, and John suddenly find themselves witnessing and participating in the Bible stories they've heard as kids. They're part of a theophany, or otherwise a a visible manifestation of God in the presence of a human. God has interrupted, intervened in human history to uniquely reveal himself to a particular people at a particular time and place. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, or Hagar after she's kicked out by Sarah, or Moses in the burning bush, or the prophet Isaiah in the heavenly throne room. All these occasions, God makes a special and even personal unveiling of himself to certain human recipients. And the disciples have just stumbled upon one of these rare moments. So this theophany, or as one commentator called it, a Christophany, is Jesus transfiguring before them. Nothing else is quite like this in the entirety of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus transfigures himself, or more explicitly, undergoes metamorphosis right before their very eyes. Jesus pulls back the curtain, so to speak, and reveals the fullness of his divinity to Peter, James, and John. His clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them, the text tells us. The brightness of Jesus' garments evokes the kind of the Shekinah glory, the divine presence perceived as radiance in the pillars of fire on the mountain, in the sanctuary, and apocalyptic visions in the Old Testament. That radiance, if you could recall, was reflected on the face of Moses, when he came down after talking with God. In the previous chapter, Peter made the accurate confession that Jesus was the Christ, but now Jesus is fully revealing his identity as not only the Messiah, but also the Son of God in a visible display of majesty and glory as he's going towards the cross. 
But then two people from the past appear with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Jewish tradition held that Moses and Elijah did not experience death, rather they were living in heaven. Yet perhaps their appearances to converse with Jesus is more significant than that. Sure, Moses and Elijah were significant people. Both of them were special prophets in the history of Israel. Both have experienced unique relationships during, with, with God during their lifetime. And I've previously alluded to the fact that Moses has been expor, exposed to the glory of God, whether at the burning bush or on Mount Sinai. But if you also remember, Elijah was also experienced some sort of theophany on Mount Horeb when he heard God in a sound of sheer silence. Both experienced unique connections with God and did extraordinary things in the name of God. Both, in a sense, were then heroes in the Jewish faith. But if you notice here, the emphasis is not on their sudden reappearance. Rather, the focus is on their placement in regards to Jesus. Notice that only Jesus is transfigured. Only he is singled out by the heavenly voice. They are conversing with him, rather vice versa. Jesus takes center stage as these two key figures from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, go to the background as Jesus comes to the foreground. Jesus is supreme over them. The focal point is on Jesus. And so when moments later, when this divine voice tells the disciple, listen to him, this has significance given who the disciples were commanded to listen to. They were told not to listen to Moses and Elijah, but rather to the Son of God, to Jesus. The rabbi, the disciples have been traveling around around Galilee and the surrounding regions is more than just some well-versed, highly educated teacher. Rather, they've been journeying around, sharing boat rides, breaking bread, and experiencing life with one who is now has precedence over over their people's national and religious heroes. It's kind of hard to put in perspective this paradigm shift that the disciples are likely experiencing at this moment. For Jews like Peter, James, and John, this is shocking. Their nation's historical heroes are beginning to suddenly be demoted as Jesus is being promoted. And it seems like this radical revelation atop this mountain is something that will follow them as they continue down it. Entire chunks of the New Testament are dedicated to these men, along with the Apostle Paul and the author of Hebrews, working to convince other Jews and God-fearing Gentiles that Jesus is truly greater than the prophets that have come before them. So, for example, if you want to jump quickly with me over to the book of Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, an anonymous preacher's argument revolves around the supremacy of Christ. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, it reads, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he has created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. In the nutshell, the author of Hebrew goes on to argue that Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses, better than the Levitical law, and even Melchizedek. Throughout its pages, Hebrews makes the clear argument that Jesus Christ exceeds all other people, pursuits, objects, or hopes to which humans might bring allegiance. The summary of the argument comes in chapter 8, verses 1 and 6. It says, Now the main point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand and throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary in a true tent that the Lord and not any other mortal has set up. 
But Jesus has now tamed a more excellent ministry, and to that agree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which he has been enacted through better promises. Jesus is greater than all, because he's not merely another human or some sort of angelic being. Jesus is God's son. So it's clear that this entire revelation atop the Mount of Transfiguration and will later be fully realized at the resurrection is something that even the earliest Christians, particularly those coming from a Jewish background, had to wrestle with. The most brilliant theologians, those nearest to Jesus himself, struggled and worked through this unbelievable concept that Jesus is not just another person, but rather Jesus is more than that. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Perhaps this experience resonated with the disciple John, who would later write in the beginning of his own gospel, and the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as a, of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. But I think we can relate here to Peter, James, and John. The transfiguration challenges us with a similar deliver of juxtaposing who or what voices we listen to and that of the Son of God. And it's imperative to point out that the earliest Christians did not do away with the Old Testament. They didn't toss out the stories of Moses and Elijah after encountering Jesus. Rather, they put him in proper alignment with who is most supreme, namely the teachings and sayings of Jesus. They valued the Holy Scriptures as breathed out by the Holy Spirit. However, they venerated the very words of Jesus Christ because they knew that he was speaking verbatim as God with us. And I think this is an ample reminder for all of us to consider our own arrangement and ordering of who or what we listen to on a daily basis. What priority does the voice of Jesus have in your life? When the divine voice tells us to listen to him and to put things that Jesus set ahead of everything else, when we listen to even Christian teachers and preachers, including myself, and even other such orders, or we read other Christian literature and blog posts and social media posts, who all claim to have a word and speak on the behalf of Christ, does their message and even their life match up and align with who we've instructed to listen to? Jesus is superior to all because all our voices we hear on a daily basis because he is revealed to be the Son of God, not just another prophet. But this brings me to my next point of listen to God everywhere. As this unbelievable scene is unfolding, is Peter who has the gumption to pipe up. And of course, Peter would be the one to acknowledge the elephant in the room, namely the presence of him and his other comrades who are shaking in their sandals at this very moment. And despite Elijah and Moses clearly having a conversation with Jesus, Peter is the one that decides to interrupt them and get a word in. He addresses his teacher and points out this golden opportunity for him, James, and John. They could manufacture individual tents and dwelling places, or the original Greek connotates the literal understanding of tabernacles for Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. Peter is likely drawing upon his ancestral history with this idea. He's pulling from what he already knows. His forefathers and foremothers who journeyed in the wilderness between Mount Sinai and the Promised Land had constructed for the Lord, in a sense, mobile home, and they called it the tabernacle. This was a forerunner to the permanent temple that will later be built in Jerusalem. But it was in the tabernacle that was located in the center of all the, in the encampments in the wilderness where God would be accessed via the Holy of Holies. 
The pillar of fire or cloud would follow them and then descend upon the tabernacle, indicating to the children of Israel that God was dwelling in that tent structure in their midst. And so perhaps Peter is drawing upon his history here. He recognizes this moment as an instance when God has manifested himself in a unique way, and so logically, building structures that signify that God has met us here on this mountaintop is the right call. In his utter terror, this is where his mind goes. This is his only response to this incomprehensible event that he, James, and John are privy to witness. And he wants to capture this moment and preserve it forever. But yet, Peter's proposal falls on deaf ears. His suggestion to have Jesus, Elijah, and Moses tabernacle on top of this mountain is rejected. Instead, the Gospel of Mark wants us to see that Peter's request is flawed. Immediately after making his request, the voice from heaven speaks, the supernatural episode evaporates, and then the four men descend the mountain. Despite this amazing, spectacular metamorphosis of Jesus, he eventually descends the mountain and returns to ground level to do the work of ministry. Peter seems to misunderstand the meaning of the transfiguration. There's no need for a tabernacle or a temple anymore. God dwells fully in the person of Jesus Christ, which the transfiguration revealed. And Jesus isn't stationary. Rather, he's mobile. Perhaps in Christian circles or youth summer camps growing up, you've heard the expression of a mountaintop experience. It's kind of a Christian cliche saying that originally, probably originated from stories like this. And Christians label in their journeys and their spiritual growth of mountaintop experiences where God did something remarkable and noteworthy in their spiritual growth. And I saw this a lot working with youth and young people as a member of a leadership team for a ministry called Splat over the summers. Splat was a ministry that took teens on mystery road trip experiences across the country. And the gimmick of the trip was that uh, all the leaders and parents knew uh, the itinerary and destination of the trip, but the students participating had no clue. And that was part of the uh, experience of the trip. But we took students all over the United States and exposed them to a variety of ministry opportunities and team-building exercises, spiritual practices, Bible teaching. And for a lot of teens, the trips or moments on the trip were mountaintop experiences. And sometimes we literally took the kids on mountaintop experiences. I have a photo to show you here, just so you can slip through them a little bit. We were in Arizona at the time uh, on an Indian reservation in the middle of the desert. It was quite an experience a number of years ago. But we all climbed up this mountain. It was a breathtaking view. But sometimes we have these literal mountaintop experiences, but then we also have these spiritual mountaintop experiences, and maybe you understand what those are. But for these kids that were on this trip, it was like an oasis from the seemingly mundane ebb and flow of being a teenager. They got to escape their families and school life and work life for a brief period of time during the summer. They got to journey up the mountain for a unique experience with God, and I witnessed God move and work in the lives of teens in incredible ways on those trips. But, and then anyone in youth ministry knows this, they eventually had to come down the mountain. The trip ends. We had to go back home to our daily lives, to our families, our jobs, our schools, and even to our normal church routines and services. Like Peter and James and John atop the mountain, the students had to realize that Jesus doesn't stay there. Like the disciples, they had to follow him back down the mountain. 
Peter's desire to tabernacle, to dwell and remain on the summit, is dismissed because Jesus is always on the move. Jesus doesn't stay on the mountaintop, and neither should we. Peter wants to freeze time and encamp in this mountaintop experience forever because he believes that is where God is best revealed. But where the reality is that he, along with the disciples, they quickly realize that the fullness of God is always revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, both on and off the mountain. There's no need for a tabernacle or temple anymore because they have Jesus. Are you holding on for another mountaintop experience to hear from Jesus? You long for those mountaintop worship experiences to hear that mountaintop sermon accompanied by that mountaintop caliber praise music. And then and only then do you believe that you can listen for God. Do you believe that only in those instances you'll hear from him? You believe when and only when you are away from the valleys of everyday life, away from the normalities of everyday existence, you're able to hear what God is saying. And But as you navigate being in the valleys of life, you hunger to go back to the mountaintop because that's where you believe you can only experience God's revelation and word. And I'm here to tell you that this morning that God is speaking to you everywhere, not just the mountaintop. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Mountaintop experiences and moments are beneficial and amazing opportunities. And I'm fortunate to be a participant and witness many of them myself. But they don't and shouldn't last forever. They come to an end. Like Jesus and the disciples who descended the mountain, we have to leave the mountaintop too. The problem comes when we make the assumption that we can only hear from God when we're on the mountaintop. We construct in our hearts and mind the expectation that God only speaks during these instances, and we've conditioned ourselves to only be ample listeners when I'm situated on the mountaintop. We tune out the normal rhythms of life to the possibility that God might be speaking to me somewhere other than the mountaintop. God can speak to us anywhere because Jesus is moving and working everywhere still today. Remember, Jesus is mobile, not stationary. The question comes, how good of a listener are you when he does speak to you on ground level? Perhaps we logically conclude that God will speak to us during a worship service like this morning or during our private devotional readings, but I want to challenge you to also consider the opportunities when God will speak to you during your ride home from work, as you're passing your friends in the hallway in school, through the testimony of another individual, or maybe an encouraging message from a loved one, or something else. This text tells us that Jesus is on the move. God, Jesus ascends and descends mountains, and the voice from heaven commands us to listen to him wherever he decides to go. But my final point this morning is listen to the beloved son. The climax of this story is the arrival of a cloud that overshadows the disciples. In the midst of this divine fog, a voice is heard that addresses them, and it says, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. Readers of the Gospel of Mark will recognize this heavenly voice from Jesus' baptism. When Jesus came out of the water and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, a voice from heaven, presumably God the Father, said, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. The Gospel of Mark does not tell us if the disciples were present at the baptism, so I guess we can conclude that they weren't. But regardless, now the disciples are recipients of this divine voice's message. Notice that the heavenly voice's statement has slightly changed since the beginning of Mark. Instead of acknowledging his pleasure with Jesus, now the message is a command to the audience watching this transfiguration to listen to the one who he has denoted as a son and beloved. 
Now God commands the disciples to obey the word of the Son. God has raised up others who are greater, one who is greater than Moses and Elijah, and the disciples are instructed to listen and obey what he says. The divine voice's charge for the disciples is to listen and heed Jesus' word is likely a command to listen to what Jesus has recently said to them. And if you backtrack to what we studied last week, you'll see that Jesus has begun telling his disciples his intentions for the Messiah. In chapter 8, verse 31, he says, Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. After three days, rise again. The words that Peter and the rest of the disciples balked at is now the things that the divine voice is directly telling them to listen to. And the one that would later go on to say, If anyone would become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me is the one who they are commanded to listen to, but not only listen to and hear, but also obey. They are to take his words with utmost severity, not only because he has showcased his superiority over Elijah and Moses, but his transfiguration and the affirmation by this divine voice has confirmed that he is the Son of God. Again, he is no longer some ordinary rabbi or teacher. He is Emmanuel. Two men were in downtown New York City, walking near Times Square in Manhattan. It was during the noon lunch hour and the streets were filled with people. Cars were honking their horns and taxi cabs were squealing around the corners. Sirens were wailing and the sounds of the city were almost deafening. Then suddenly one man said to the other, I hear a cricket. His friend said, what? You must be crazy. You couldn't possibly hear a cricket and all this noise. No, I'm sure I heard it, the man replied. I heard a cricket. That's crazy, said the friend. The man listened carefully for a moment and then walked across the street to a big cement planter where some shrubs were growing. He looked into the bushes beneath the branches and sure enough, he located a small cricket. His friend was utterly amazed. That's incredible, said his friend. You must have superhuman ears. No, said the man. My ears are no different from yours. It all depends on what you're listening for. But that can't be, said the friend. I could never hear a cricket in this noise. Yes, it's true, came the reply. It depends on what is really important to you. Here, let me show you. So he reached into his pocket, pulled out a few coins, and discreetly dropped them on the sidewalk. And then with the noise of the crowded streets still blaring in their ears, they noticed every head within 25 feet turn and look and see if the money that trickled on the pavement was theirs. See what I mean, asked the man. It all depends what's important to you. The reoccurring message of Jesus that began before ascending the mountain and that will continue once they descend is predictions of Easter. He repeatedly tells his disciples of his passion, humiliation, death, and resurrection. Jesus, over and over again, will tell his followers that he's going to suffer. Jesus will tell them again three other times, yet each time the disciples are unable to hear this And instead of listening for comprehension, they listen to offer their own two cents, opinions, suggestions, and even objections. They were listening for what they wanted to hear, rather listening for what God was actually desiring to say. They were listening for what was important to them, rather than what was important to Jesus. We are guilty of that, are we not? We are selective listeners, like the disciples. We pick and choose what we want to hear from God. Like a buffet, we pick up our tray and put, it on, put on our plate all that we want to hear from God. 
We tune out or change radio frequencies to what we want to desire to hear from God the most. But the Gospel of Mark tells us that we are to listen to the entirety of the beloved Son's message because all of it is important as a result of who said it. We are instructed to listen to Jesus and obey whatever he says. And that means we heed the things that we like Jesus saying. Like in Matthew chapter 11, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But it also means that when Jesus tells us something a little harder to swallow, we also take it and believe it like he says in chapter 10, Whoever wishes to become great among you must also be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave to all. We listen to when Jesus tells us in John 3:16, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that anyone who believes in Him may not perish but have eternal life." But we also need to heed what, John, what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, "I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they could do. But I will warn you to whom to fear, fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him." We are called to not be selective listeners. Rather, we are called to listen to all that Jesus said and obey. And I love this last line from this great hymn, Trust and Obey, as I think it captures this notion really well. The lyrics are this, and it says, Then in fellowship sweet we sat at his feet, or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go, never fear, only trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. How good of a listener are you? How would you grade your active listening skills? We see in this familiar text this morning a call and an invitation to listen to the beloved Son of God. We're given no alternative. As disciples of Christ, we are called to listen to him, not the voices of the world, not the voices of the evil one, but we are called to heed what Jesus says. Jesus is worthy to be heard. And Jesus speaks to us both on the mountaintop but also in the valleys below. And all that Jesus said is worth hearing and obeying because who he is.